When I was nine years old, I fed cereal flakes to a frog and it died. Then I went on a, a period of time where I fed cereal flakes to all little animals. Squirrels can live through it, chipmunks can live through it. Anything that lives half in and out of the water dies, and I don't understand why. When I was 10, I once walked by my mother sleeping, and I snuck in the room and I put a lemon in her mouth. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Dave. Thanks for joining Bob and I for our podcast, Thriving in Dystopia. And even though we always try and be professionals, sometimes we swear. So just know that going in. Welcome to the big show, Bob. How are you? Doing good, Dave. Excited for our recording. It is just always a blessing to just find the time to connect and do the podcast. You are finishing your first week, right, of teaching. I'm not going to beat around the bush. I want to hear about it. Tell me, how, how did it go? Yeah, it was super successful. I felt my anxiety was down. That's, um, there's a book out there. Um, it's not really a book so much as like a TED Talk um, or a bunch of TED Talks that are looped together that Audible is selling as a book. Like I, I listened to it this right before school started. It's by Brene Brown and it's called The Power of Vulnerability, I believe. It's good. I mean, she's good in general, as we all know. It's just like fun, like ear candy for you for the most part. But she talks about uh, like the 10 pillars of wholehearted living. And the one I decided that fit me the most for this year was accepting quietness and stillness and letting go of anxiety because I feel like that's the thing that I need to work on the most. The other nine, I think I'm a master of, so no need to worry about those. Just kidding. Uh, but yeah, anyway, I just do feel like my anxiety levels down. I feel a little more in control and like looking out over the course of this year, I know that I'll be able to use so much of what I did last year, this year. But really what it, and I know that I shouldn't be doing this week after week one, but really what excites me is like next year, I'm going to be able to reuse everything, you know, because everything will be in both languages and I'll be able to seamlessly go through them. I feel like this is it. Like this is happening. So I think, yeah, I will give you a couple highlights. One of my favorite things to do is lead icebreaker type games. I told the other teachers, my my team, that I would get all the fourth graders out on the big field and I would do some icebreakers. I did a birthday lineup, which is a classic, but it was ambitious to get 58 plus fourth graders to line up in birthday order. Mm. You, uh, how long do you think it took them, Bob? Maybe 10 minutes. Man, that would be a dream. It was 27 minutes. Wow. Yeah. I, it, it was so cool to see all the like leaders that were trying to step up and be like, September birthdays, come over here, you know? And then the people that were like, what is like, I need to like spaz out and throw pine cones at my buddy, you know? And it was just definitely just clear that like communication was not awesome, you know, which is makes sense. Cause like these kids haven't been in a cohort this big since like, the middle of second grade, which is crazy to think about, you know? Uh, and then we did this game called Mar y Tierra, where they jump back and forth. Like one, there's a line in, down the middle. And if I say Mar, you have to jump to the the seaside. 
And then if I say Tierra, you jump to the land and you go back and forth and I try and mess you up, you know, like Tierra, Mad, Tierra, Mad, Mad, and stay. And it's just fun to just point and just laugh and watch all the fun stuff that happens. That's awesome. I mean, it sounds like such good energy. What would you say the overall vibe was at the school coming back? Was there good energy all around or everyone feeling collectively coming back to campus after the summer in such times? Yeah, I would say in general, like my class is pretty high energy and positive. Um, but there, it's just so much nervous energy from everybody, you know, new faces, new friends, new teachers, new classrooms, new expectations. COVID protocol, which we were like kind of easing up on at the end of last year is like back in full force, you know, distancing and masks and hand washing. But some of the things that like we found out aren't like a huge trigger, like being outside without a mask is kind of nice that we're able to have like kids outside without a mask. Cause I feel like that's a really nice way to take a break. Whereas last year during recess, they had to wear masks, you know, I think in general, it's really high. I, I'm working with some pretty new teachers, different teachers from last year. So we're trying to like figure out each other and see how we're going to make it work. But I think my school, like the culture of the school in general is like really good. I don't think that there's been a lot of like, basically what I'm trying to say is parents support us. I know that like the school district of Fort Collins, which is called Pooter School District, had like a lot of parents at the school board meeting protesting the, the wearing of masks, you know? But there are no parents in my school that have said anything, you know, and the parents generally support the teachers that are trying to do this hard work, you know, rather than trying to like oppose us or like give mixed messaging, you know, they're just like, this is what you got to do, you know, and I kind of feel like that's just what you got to do sometimes. Sometimes you just got to wear a mask to be healthy and friend of the show, Mike Bishop came over yesterday and he said that basically at this point, everyone's either going to get vaccinated or get Delta, you know? That's basically what it comes down to. So, or both. Yeah. Or probably both at some point. Yeah. But I guess I should say the vaccine, of course, helps to prevent getting it quite a bit. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. As don't want any of that uh, anti vax lingo, Bob. <laughs> exactly. No, I'm so pro vax. Just, just while I have, have this for a second, I just saw this great poster. It's like a social justice poster. And it says like wearing masks is an act of love. And that's so grounding, you know, like you're saying, you're talking about the mask. I mean, some people are like extremely against masks, but uh, so every time I mask up, I'm like, this is an act of love, you know? So even if I'm outside, even if I'm, yeah, it's because I still hesitate, you know, sometimes when I put on a mask and the other person's not wearing a mask, there's a little bit of like, do they think I'm like, dissing them or something like that. But you, you and I have talked about this on the show, but I just wanted to mention that poster. Maybe I can link to the poster in the show notes. Well, I got to get another link that you got to get the, the show notes people on. There's a woman, her name's Aviva Ram, and she is kind of like a guru of alternative medicine, but she's not like, she's not like anti me, like uh, Western medicine. You know what I mean? Um, and she thinks that both have their benefits and there's been times where she's opposed some vaccines, but she thinks that we should look at each vaccine, um, rather than just like yes to vaccines or no to vaccines. You know what I mean? 
Does that make sense? Yeah, um, definitely so, like case by case basis. Yeah, exactly. She's like a researcher and she did a lot of research on the COVID vaccine and she came out with a post maybe on her podcast or maybe it was, I saw a video of it. So it, it could have been like a Twitter that she had posted, but um, it was really good to just watch her break down like a lot of the myths that are happening and why those aren't correct, but also like what are some of the facts and like where, where we are at, you know, and like, you know, cause everybody's in a little bit different situation. Like some people are amino crop, amino, amino compromised. What's that word? Immuno. Amino compromised. And, um, but also like those, yeah, like it's also like Delta is going to fuck you up too. If you're amino, amino comp. Oh gosh. <laughs> Anyways. And she just kind of went through it and it, it was good information for me to hear. Um, so I'm just going to recommend that to the old thriving crew. Great. Yeah. I'll link to that as well. For yeah. sure. And of course I found out about that through Julie, you know? Um, but yeah, first week was real good, Bob. Um, had one little fight on the soccer field that I had to spend about 40 minutes debriefing. So we didn't get to get to uh, a lesson that I had planned called genius hours, which was kind of a shame. Instead, we just talked about uh, how to be, how to practice kindness and on the soccer pitch. It's a good lesson. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I guess that one's for our other podcast. (laughs) (laughs) It's for the old beyond X and O's. So that's it, Bob. That's where I'm at. How are you doing? Yeah, I feel good. I don't know what exactly I can say. I am, you know, six weeks until I have to go back to school to teach and feeling like uh, just sort of midsummer. And I, I, I did go to a wedding yesterday my wife's friend got married in Santa Cruz and it was the first wedding that we, or I've been to since your wedding. Damn. Back in 2018. Yeah. It's coming so, up on three years in a few days here, Bob. Yeah. You know, there's a time in my life where it felt like a lot of my friends and family were getting married, you know, a couple weddings every year. And then all of a sudden, and you know, of course COVID has a lot to do with it Th- three years yep. and I haven't been to a wedding. So wow, it, it felt, it felt fun. It, I really enjoy that friend and yeah, just weddings are interesting places. I appreciated going and I guess, uh, you know, slowly but surely I'm thinking about putting my lesson plans together for, for teaching. And I do have a lot of nervous, I mean, excitement, but nervousness of me going back to the classroom mm-hmm. um, because UCSC, I believe it's pretty clear to me, they were prepping for a world of, non-Delta COVID when they made decisions around bringing back students and then, right. you know, Delta hits, uh, but we're like, a, or UCSC is like a slow moving Titanic. You know, once they make the decision, it's probably going to happen. I mean, they could pull the brakes and do something different, but um, so yeah, I think going back to the classroom, I, th- I feel a lot less confident Um than I did at the beginning of the summer. So I'm sure other students are. And so I'm just thinking about how to like make my classroom as accessible as possible for, for a lot of students who are, you know, are immunocompromised and mm-hmm. will be reluctant to go back into the classroom. And I can understand that. Yeah. 
Am I right, Bob? Do you get this feeling that it's really not about like sanitizing surfaces as much as it is about wearing masks and washing hands and like not touching our face? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I read a good article on the Atlantic about that at some point calling it like um, something like sanitizing theater, you know, like, right. It's more about like businesses wanted to show that they were sanitizing everything to bring people back. And like scientists thought it was like more connected to surfaces early on, but, and I think you still could get it if it was like a really, you know, if I coughed and then wiped the surface and you touch that, I think you could get it, but it's, it's, it's so much aerosol based, you know? So like coming out of mouth to mouth. Um, so yeah, masks are just like the best thing for against coronavirus. I guess masks and vaccines are, we have great armor, but we have a society that is so politicized that, you know, we're in a mess. That's true. And I did want to mention too, um, I'm pretty sure that our editor Nadir got married yesterday. Oh yeah. I'm curious to hear a little bit more about that. I don't know much about that, but the fact that I was at a wedding yesterday and Nadir probably got married yesterday. Do you know, do you know more? Nah, just that he's getting married. I mean, don't really know the guy that well, and we're supposed to have him on the show. So, um, if you got a question for Nadir, send it our way. And I know that some of our more faithful listeners will have to send them uh, like a Google form, but maybe Bob could link a Google form in the show notes or something now, Bob. Absolutely. And while I have you, like I've, I've been wanting to say this about talking with Nadir and cause we want to have him on the show. And so, yeah, I'll just, he gave me a little bit of a bio. And so I could give that to the listeners right now. Do it. Um, Nadir is 24 years old and grew up in a small town in Bosnia called Maglai. Um, it has about 2000 people living there and it's probably just about 500 people living in the city and the rest outside of it. He says that as you expect, it's small, small town living and it's on the boring side for a kid like him who wants to play in a band and play shows. So yeah, that's, you know, pushed him towards mu- music and doing stuff with music, which brought him to computer and like creative work on computers. He is also going to school to be a chemical technologist and work with pulp and paper mill outside of town. It's a gigantic factory that's bigger than the town itself. Um, But there are no jobs offering there, usually for a chemical technologist, interestingly enough. He he got his first, he he moved to Sarajevo and got his first editing editing job there. And sometimes he makes a little money with music as well. He always wanted to work somewhere where he doesn't have to work too much, um, but have a steady income so he can work on his craft of making music. And so, yeah, I, I just, I mean, I appreciate Nadir for sending that. There's a lot of interesting aspects there, especially for, you know, most of our listeners are in the U S but just, yeah. Thinking about, um, Nadir surviving or thriving in a different part of the overall global dystopia. Um, so if listeners have any questions, send them our way and then we can ask Nadir on the show. Yeah. And it's been hard to organize it just because. Sometimes our shows come together pretty haphazard these days. Yep. Yeah. With us being so busy. A shoestring type of podcast. (laughs) Well, Bob, I just wanted to, one of my thoughts that's been running through my head this week was um, 
just how like things affect other things. And as we're getting into uh, another world as possible and thinking about that, and I got thinking about the Zapatistas with that, I, I don't think we've ever exclusively like dedicated some time to the Occupy movement, which has been, was really formative more in your life than anybody's. Um, sorry, than mine. <laughs> Me and David Graeber, you know? Yeah. Very informative. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. So, but I did, I was like, where are we? Like, what did, what happened with Occupy? You know, because I guess I wanted to start with some of the history and then kind of like a little bit of a retrospective. Cause I believe it was about 10 years ago. Am I wrong? It was like September of 2020 or sorry, 2011. I'm pretty sure it hit October 4th, but that might've been the Santa Cruz Occupy. So you have to look at my dates as well. And you, I think you're, I think you're right that the New York one started in September and it was definitely 2011. So 10 years exactly, Dave. So yeah, I, I love this idea. Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll give a quick brief intro and then I'm curious to hear you expand on it. As I know, being the layman of the show, um, you know, Occupy sort of came out of the housing collapse the of, I think it was 08, the housing bubble when it burst and then the bailouts of 09 and then sort of like those sent shockwaves around the country. And then it got to a point where, you know, 2011 happens and people are like, you know, uh, what's the square called where it happened, Bob? Um, Zuccotti Park. Um, Zuccotti Park. Or I right. think they renamed it Liberty Square, something like that. Mm-hmm. And it seems like it came out of nowhere almost, right? Like, and I know that the influences were, you know, strongly with the economic collapse of the 2000 aughts. But with any movement, you look back in history as to where you're seeing this pop up. And a big thing, you know, this takes place in economics more than anything else. So it's like, it's definitely influenced by like, I probably am thinking Seattle and um, 99 and the NAFTA WTO type of stuff, right? Absolutely. Yep. And yeah, I I think the roots are also very much in the queer activism of ACT UP in the 1980s and 90s. Oh yeah, sure. Because it is a New York based uh, movement more than anything. but. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just curious if you want to add on to that and give us a little more context. Yeah. Thank you, David. Yeah. I think everything you said is right on and it is a really important historical moment and movement that was, yeah, really good for this, this season because another world is possible was definitely at the core of what Occupy was about. And I agree with you that, you know, looking at the history of it with the housing crisis and the recession of 08, I remember a lot of commentary and commentators were saying, at least on the left, were like, and where is the people out on the streets protesting against like the banks getting bailed out um, and, you know, the fact that capitalism seemed to be only strengthening itself, even though it should have been. It was the core creator of that problem. So it was interesting that it took so long, but Occupy was definitely a response to all that. And it, 
the other thing that was interesting about it was that it, it like exploded. You know, it went from New York to like a thousand different cities in the United States having, and these were like big occupies, you know, or like hundreds of people that were taking over city public spaces. And it's really important to also situate Occupy within the resistance in the Middle East around the Arab Spring that started in Tunisia and Egypt. Um, Egypt, you know, overthrew their government uh, and actually a number of other countries overthrew their government. Um, and it was like a really exciting moment that maybe progressive governments would take over in the Middle East. Then also that's, that sprung up like these things called the Indignados and in Spain and these like plaza takeovers in Spain and Italy and parts of Europe. And then that sort of influenced Occupy. Um, so yeah, I remember like when we were in Occupy, we were like really curious and always paying attention to how things were going in, in the Middle East and, and whatnot. So yeah. And you know, I think some of the occupies lasted maybe six months. The one in Santa Cruz lasted like four months. Um, the winter was really hard, but also like the police repression and, you know, cities trying to crush it um, from the outside. And then the internal dynamics were always really challenging as well. Of Like, you know, people from very different backgrounds with different political, you know, theories or political ideologies, I guess. Um, it was always difficult with a consensus model to like figure out what to do. So, um, but for me, yeah, I was there a lot in Santa Cruz and went up to occupy Oakland a lot. And it was very transformative for me as a activist and social movements, you know, theorist or someone who teaches social movements and yeah, I guess I would just say like a, a big moment was in Oakland when there was a general strike one day planned in like November and that, tens of thousands, like 80,000 people took the streets and shut down the port of Oakland. And there's so much power and, you know, power to the people in the people's movement. So it felt like we could do anything or like a different way forward would be possible. And we're, we're, we were closer to some kind of revolutionary change than any other point in my lifetime, I would say maybe, maybe, you know, last summer that certainly feels like it. I'm not sure like which one was closer to radical changes, but um, yeah, yeah. And we could talk about the, like what did Occupy influence in a bit, but that, that'd be my intro on Occupy and yeah, curious to hear where you'd like to take this conversation, Dave. Yeah, I'm I'm ready to go down because I don't think we need to stay in the past too long. I am curious to, I don't know the answer to this, but do you know what the last Occupy to be shut down was? Like, it certainly mm. wasn't Wall Street. Yeah, I don't really know. There's probably like some that just had different relationships with their cities that were able to last longer. But I think- yeah with the bigger ones, like basically the New York one and the Oakland one, when those ones were shut down, those were like the big engines of the movement. Yeah. Those were the ones that were doing work, right? That's right. 
yeah, I got to walk upstairs as we're chatting just because my computer's dying. So you'll get a little background noise listeners. Um, yeah, I bet there's probably still some like Occupy like uh, Bar Harbor or something that's still going on where people get together and drink a beer on like Wednesdays or something like that, you know? Yeah, there probably is. Yeah, that, something like that did keep on going in Santa Cruz, I remember. Yeah, um, but the engine, like you said, certainly did get shut down. And I think that in and of itself is like where it, where it went. But like with any movement like nothing gets shut down forever, right? It just gets transformed, especially with these powerful people type movements. Don't you agree? Oh uh, yeah. So I agree. Like the culture changes and the ideas. Yeah. It just always, it's like a river, you know, you can dam it, but it, it'll flow in other places. Yeah. So to me, like, and I've, I've done no research. This is just me sitting in bed watching a Cleveland guardians game. Um, thinking about this and I was like, I, I kind of feel like the energy from there went to two different places and maybe three. Um, like it went to standing rock pretty heavily. And I feel like those movements like standing rock was very tied to occupy wall street and the water protectors of, um, the Sioux. Um, but yeah. And then I also feel like the BLM movement, you know, is like tied back to that. Um, the start of that in Ferguson, I'd say is the real like push for black lives matter, um, of the, like the first generation, I would say. Um, and I kind of feel like that was in some ways it was in opposition because I feel like, um, standing rock was like, Hey, this is our land. And we're not like, we're occupying our land and you need to get the fuck out of here. Like you don't have like capitalism can't be here, you know? But I feel like what black lives matter is asking is like, Hey, like, you know, yes, we all are the 99%, but like this, like, you know, 40 to 60% of the 99% are people that are getting targeted by cops. And this other like 40% are people that are like doing fine and aren't like really down to like change their lives. So I feel like the BLM movement sort of was addressing like some of the problems that you're talking about of like how there's these like different voices. And it's like, if like Occupy really was like a uniting force in a lot of ways, but it's like, if you're going to ignore like the issues of systematic racism in the United States, you're not going to get very far, you know? And I feel like that's why these two energies went those two ways. Um, yeah. And I, I don't know, I, I guess I feel like, you know, some of the, some of the energy went to like pride movement in the U S and like, trans rights in general, but also like queer rights and ha what's been happening over the last 10 years with that. Those are like the three energies that I feel like it really directed towards. Um, oh, I, can I mention a fourth real quick? Um, I just feel like Bernie Sanders is just like tied to the Occupy movement. He was like the hero on, of the like mainstream that like without Occupy, there is no Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders is so anti-bank in general. Um, yeah, but that's, that's where I've felt. And I'm just curious. That's my Mount Rushmore of uh, where Occupy's energies went. The, um, 
the big four. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think if you could bottle Occupy, it would look like Bernie Sanders, like Bernie Sanders is like, or like the mascot, not, I mean, Bernie's not a mascot, but you know, like Bernie is yeah, the but, representation. Is he has some mascot ability. That's right. <laughs> the, the Occupy Bernie's <laughs> go get them squad. Yeah. That is the biggest three line, I think for sure. And I agree with you that there's definitely some things that Occupy did to bring people together to help um, create more movement behind Black Lives Matter and Standing Rock. But those two movements definitely were also critiques of, of Occupy. And right. I mean, Standing Rock for sure, like the, the language of Occupy was very colonial and had a, quite a distaste to a lot of indigenous activists and, mm. um, you know, the empire occupies and the fact that people at Occupy wouldn't talk about or just weren't talking about um, decolonizing, what, what decolonizing would mean that showed um, that Occupy is sort of like a, like a false starter or something like the framework is not the right framework. Um, And then BLM for the same things that like the 99% framework also important, but not also not the right framework because it homogenizes the 99% and, you know, pretends as if uh, like, for example, me and my social conditions are the same as someone in a prison or like people of color living in like Flint, like, and so you have to be able to bring people together, but not erase those key differences. And so I think social movements have done a great job in the last 10 years of like no longer erasing those differences while still carrying on the torch of Occupy in the sense of like having a critique of wealth inequality, of some of the big institutions of capitalism. So those are like things that Occupy, I still am very happy, you know, or grateful for that it pushed those things to more people. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be, I'm just curious to see where the energies will go towards. I feel like where we were in 10 years ago and where I see some of the kids are right now. Uh, I just feel like there's, there is a lot of hope in that living in another world being possible. Um, and just like living in the moment, because I feel like those, these social movements that we are like, we've brought up are like pushing the world into a much better place. And yeah, I just feel like it's fun to look back at these things and how they interconnect to each other, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Like what would a world look like if Occupy never happened? Um, is another way to look at it. It showed that like bringing people together is just always really important. And in times of pandemic, that's so hard to do. Um, but there's so much power in, in like bringing people together. I think for Occupy, we were sitting ducks and the, the city and the police could come after us, you know, and eventually take us down. And so Black Lives Matter has been so much more mobile. And that I think has been good, good for BLM. Um, so that learning I think was directly or at least partially connected to the ways that like when you're stationary, the cops can just destroy you literally. Um, 
but the like, Occupy that it happened. It's like if it had never happened, that would be so brutal to take all those blows of the bailouts and then say like, you know, yeah, keep it coming, keep the blows coming or something like that. Um, standing up is is just so crucial um, because it does give hope. And yeah, I'm curious, my students. You, you, you got me going, Dave, and I'm going to bring up Occupy when I teach in the fall. And I want to know what my students know about Occupy. Yeah. Sweet, Bob. Yeah. They were, you know, if they're like 18 to 21, they were like eight to 10 year olds. They were like my kids. Yep. You know, um, I want to say one final thing is we decided to start a book club and Bob doesn't know about this, but, um, there's an author. Her name is Eula Biss. I don't know much about her. Um, Mike Bishop recommended me this to this. And we got talking about capitalism yesterday when we were hanging out, me, Dan and Mike. And um, she wrote a book in 2020 called having and being had. And it sort of um, is a critique of capitalism. And, you know, I think there, her quote is like, my life is split up into two parts. Um, the life before I owned an oven and the life after. So it talks a little bit about like where we are in the capitalist world. And I think too, that that also got me thinking about Occupy. So get your, get your Eulabis going and um, yeah, let's get, let's get it, Bob. Perfect. That's a good place to go. Yeah. Well, thank you for this topic, Dave. I loved it. And I think we'll probably be seeing some more retrospectives out there when we come, you know, into September and October. But yeah. we were the first, I think. <laughs> right on, Bob. Well, I got a quick fix for you, Bob. Okay. Yep. So I got a class pet this year. Did you know that? Mm-mm. I have a bearded dragon. Oh, a BD. A BD. It's a lizard from Australia. No, very, no, very little about it, but me and mom went and got it today. Wow. Yeah. I got a little tiny grant and, um, yeah, I was able to procure the dragon, which was pretty fun. Um, anyways, uh, I, what would you do, Bob? I need to have the heat lamp on during the day. And I leave the classroom at 4 p.m. or 5 p.m. some days. So I can like turn it on when I get there at 8 a.m. That seems fine. But what should I do about turning off the light? Should I go back to school every day? What do you got for me for me for a quick fix? Getting my bearded dragon as much UVB light as possible. So let me understand it. So on a typical weekday, you can turn it on at 8, keep it on all day till you leave at, at like five. 5. Yep. And... Do you, are you thinking like maybe it needs even more time than that in a given day? Yeah, I think it'd be good. And also the weekends, like that seems like a lot. So I've just been sitting here brainstorming like how to, because I don't really want to go in and turn it on. I don't, but I don't want to leave it on all day because I don't want to fuck with the cycle. It just seems like I don't also want to take home the bearded dragon, but I mean, you know, there's cloudy days out there on the outback, right? So, but I guess I want to get into a good cycle. Just curious if 
yeah. Should I, should I neglect it? Some of the UVB light and just give it 10 hours a day while I'm there at school? I think we need to know a little bit more. I think we need you to call a vet or to do a little bit more research to know like exactly how much they need. And if like having certain days where they don't have it, like what are the effects of that? Then a mm. second quick fix is like, does your school have like a custodian who could help you with that? Oh yeah, that's a possibility. I could ask, I could ask uh, my night custodian. She's there till 10 PM. It seems like a bit of a big ask. Maybe, I mean, there's no harm in asking, right? Right. Um, and yeah. maybe you could do something for them. Oh yeah. That seems like a pretty good idea, Bob. It doesn't quite solve my weekend problem, but I'm okay to be there at least for the next few, the first weekends to, I also got to make sure that the dragon gets fed on the weekend, you know? So got to give it, got to give the dragon the crickets and the leafy greens. I think for this situation, don't be afraid to ask people for support, like the custodian staff or others who just like, I don't know what your school looks like, but that might be there on the weekends. That's true. Yep. Nice, Bob. Let's, let's do it with community power yet again. What kind of pie? Community pie. <laughs> no, Occupy. Damn it. You missed it, Bob. All right, Nadir, cut the show here. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, that was I'll a good one. The coordinates. I'll give the coordinates, all right? Uh, thriving in dystopia at gmail.com. No, that's not right. Thriving in dystopia.com. Uh, Dave Peachtree at gmail.com thriving underscore in underscore dystopia on Instagram bmaze19 on Twitter Dave Peachtree on TikTok and um, yeah you can just send us a, a letter to to the corner of Euclid and um, Marina in Santa, Santa Barbara Santa Monica I think my bearded dragon has a woke over here so yeah. we'll see. We'll see you next time. Love you, Bob. Thanks for that. Love you, Dave. What's up, driving crew? Bob and Dave want to take a second to thank you for lending them your ears. They also want to thank the artists for making everything a little more beautiful. The intro song is In Heaven by Drake Stafford. Our audio is edited by the consummate and dexterous Nadir Chayetch. Web design by Chris the Mixer Sawyer. And of course, visual art is by the prolific and enigmatic Joe Shine. Our new outro song is Box Goldberg Variations, Variato 3 a 1 by Kimiko Ishizaka. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.